time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646 716 4972. Now, here's your host of Lickin' On Lending, David Lickin. Let's begin. Folks, I'm excited to have Joe Murin joining us. He is chairman of JJAM Financial Services. We're going to hear about that in just a minute. But Joe has a distinguished career in the industry, uh, the most prominent area that's of his background that we're going to talk and focus on today. He is the past president of Jenny May, and Joe is also a part of Ainsworth Advisors. It's an advisory board services firm where we provide advisory services as a board to mortgage bankers, typically independent mortgage bankers, but oftentimes more and more banks are showing interest. And you can take a look at Joe's profile there on AinsworthAdvisors.com. It's a real honor to have Joe here with us today. Also, I'd call your attention to the Lickin' on Leadership podcast. You can go to Lickin' on Leadership. And look for Joe Murins at Season 2, January 30th, 2019. We did an interview and got his perspective on leadership. I just noticed as we're recording this today, it was downloaded two more times and listened to today. Very popular podcast. Joe, it's good to have you with us. Appreciate you taking time. Well, it's always a pleasure, David. It's nice, especially at my age, to still have some relevance in in the industry. No, you do. Well, I think what we failed to learn from history, we're doomed to repeat. You and I have been through, and I've been at this for 47 years, and you've got a number of decades underneath your belt. I think it's a 40 40 plus as well, if I'm not mistaken. 50, yeah. Almost 50 years, yeah. Yeah, my gosh. Five decades. Yeah, yeah, five decades is a long time. I'm almost there. Almost there. So I'll be chasing you down that path. But we're grateful to have you here today, and I want to talk about something that we talked on a recent Ainsworth Advisory Board. We published, folks, a snippet of what we you would hear if you retain Ainsworth Advisors. And as we were talking about that, it was I think it was just before or just after we recorded what you'll hear on the website. I encourage you to go listen to that. Again, check out Ainsworth Advisors. But Joe really started vocalizing his passion about Jenny May, and that's what we're going to talk about. So, Joe, thank you so much for being here, and I'm excited to get into this topic. Sure. You are passionate about Jenny May, the Jenny May program, and I want to get an understanding of why. What is it that is got you a bit stirred up? Well, I mean, first of all, to be able to be a part or be an issuer, an approved issuer of the Jenny May program is certainly a gift because any time that you're in this business and you can control your liquidity destiny, I think that's a gift. And I think that a lot of folks don't really understand how important that is. I mean, they go through the motions, put their pools together, but they really don't understand how important it is to be able to have the control over your own liquidity. And I think that's what, that's why I'm so passionate about it because it's such an important tool for the mortgage banking industry, especially when you you're in the Gini program and you're dealing with people in need, FHA programs, our veterans under the VA, the folks under the USDA program. I mean, these are not high profile borrowers. These are mom and pop borrowers who struggle every day. They're they're taking advantage of an FHA program or they're veterans taking advantage of the VA program. And you have the ability to service them and then control the liquidity so you can go out and service them again. So that's why I'm so passionate, David, about the, the 
business and the industry. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm a little bit disturbed about it today, but I'm hoping it'll come back around to where it needs to be, and we'll have to wait and see. Well, let's talk about where it needs to be in just a minute, but let's talk about why you are disturbed right now. What are the things you're seeing about the Jenny May program that concerns you? Well, I think first and foremost, I think the Jenny May program, to become part of the Jenny May program, it's the requirements are too lenient. Anybody with a net worth of two and a half million can become eligible. Well, a million dollars in equity to become eligible for a program like Ginny May is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, because the, the, the vast majority of a million dollars in equity co- means that there's really no liquidity in the organization, client's balance sheet. So how are they going to be responsible for putting pools together? How are they going to be responsible for managing the delinquency and being able to use, and if they're retaining the MSRs and being able to uh, accommodate the pastor requirements? It's just impossible for that to happen. And when I look at the Ginny May program today and I see $2 trillion worth of outstandings and 70 to 75% of that $2 trillion is held by non-depository type issuers, that's a real big concern for me. And so what I don't want to happen is for something traumatic to happen to that program. Then all of a sudden, the folks in our legislature zero in on it, and all of a sudden, the program ends up being something that you really don't want it to be. So I have a problem with that. We need a lot of work to be done on the Gini program to make it a program that's as important as it needs to be to be able to provide the service it provides to the mortgage industry. And there's nothing more important in the mortgage industry than to be able to have access to liquidity. Joe, the recent events with the pandemic has really shined a light on how critical it is people understand the importance of liquidity. Talk about this event. And it doesn't take a black swan event such as the pandemic to to really challenge and bring this important point home. Why are you so passionate about having a greater liquidity than two and a half million? And what should it realistically be? Is there a number you have in your mind? Well, I think there's a couple of things, David. First of all, when you have a $2 trillion portfolio and the vast majority of the issuers supporting that portfolio do not have the liquidity requirements, then that in itself can be a catastrophic event. It doesn't take a, a, a pandemic to do it. It just takes a recession. So it's if I don't have the ability to convert some of my assets to liquid cash so that I have the ability to pass through, or if I don't have the ability to go out and, and create lines of credit to be able to take the pass to be able to pay the pass-throughs, then it's problematic. Ginny can only do so much. When I left office, we were somewhere around $860 billion, and I think we were at 18% with non-depository issuers, which was relatively safe. Today, right. it's just ballooned out of proportion, and I think that's the biggest thing I worry about is not having that program because it gets out of hand and something catastrophic happens. Yeah. You're talking about a lot of independent mortgage bankers, uh, non-regulated institutions that are now contributing into that that program, and that's where the concern is, those entities. Define that for some of our listeners, why you're not as concerned about it for the regulated institutions, and more so, it's, I know it's fairly obvious, but for those that are newer to the industry, I'd like to have you walk them through that. Well, if you have a depository institution that's an issuer, they have access to deposits. So they always have liquidity that they have access to. Non-depositories aren't in the same type of business, so they don't have access, easy access to liquidity. And that's the problem. And if they have to come up with the pass-through payments, the P&I, every month because they have delinquencies out there, or in this case, it's uh, forbearance issues out there, then it's, it's a compounding problem that there's no end to it. So I think that ultimately, the banks backed away from the FHA program a few years ago just because it was they, they weren't comfortable with the Department of Justice. So they backed away 
way. So when the chases or the or the cities or all those guys, when they kind of get out of the Ginny Mae business, that even puts a bigger emphasis on the potential problem that those Ginny pools can have. So I, from, from my perspective, I think a couple things have to happen. Number one, I think Ginny needs to be able to really improve on its acknowledgement agreement because the institutions that you talk to relative to being able to, to be able to feel comfortable enough to lend money on the MSRs, whatever value they're going to value that. It's too cumbersome to go through this Ginny process. And this goes all the way back to when I was in office in 2008, 2009. It's a cumbersome process that most people don't like. And so Ginny really has to really sit down and go through this and figure this out. The second thing they need to do is, yes, I think two and a half million is not enough equity, but more importantly, what's the liquidity capital ratio that that issuer has. And what does that mean? Well, I mean, you may have a two and a half million dollar net worth. That doesn't mean that those assets are liquid or relatively liquid. So what's your liquidity ratio and how do you calculate the liquidity ratio? So I think Ginny needs to come up with a capital liquidity ratio that every issuer needs to have. So most issuers, when they get into business that are non-depositories, they accumulate MSRs. And that's nice as long as everything is going fine. Today, what's the MSR values? Today's pandemic environment. Not too good, not too definable. Very, very difficult to create liquidity to sell those MSRs. Most issuers think, oh, it's not a problem. I'll just sell MSRs. No, it's not that easy. In tough times, it is not a very liquid instrument. And if it is a liquid instrument, it's pennies on the dollar. So you can't depend on the liquidity of your MSR portfolio to bail you out when you have to have pass-through payments. It's like having margin calls. You don't have any money for the margin calls. It's the same principle. So I think that they have to be able to Create a capital liquidity structure that every issuer needs to have, especially if they're retaining their MSRs, or every new issuer that doesn't have that capital requirement, they at least have to be able to liquidate those MSRs and not hold on to those MSRs until they meet that standard. So something has to happen because all we're doing is kicking a can down the road and hoping this thing don't blow up on us. Any thoughts on originator? Let's say even there are five billion. The biggest concern I have about the just having a stated net worth is a Originator can, as a really good originator, can outproduce their coverage, even though they may have 20, 15, 20 million dollars net worth. They, it's possible that they can originate and have so many MSRs out there that they outstrip their ability to support them should something like what we're going through right now, the COVID pandemic. You're absolutely right. So when you take a look at that, in cases like we have today, when refis are, are they're just people are just making money hand over fist with these refis programs. And, and when you think about it, David, we've really been in the refi market since 2001. So from, have, from yeah. my perspective, yep. a lot of the new issuers that have come on board in that last 20-year period have not really done anything more than just become an originator of refi business. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that's easy money. I think what the other thing Jenny has to do is to make sure that they don't outstrip themselves so they can somewhat control that by how much you know authority they give them when they're requested. So if you see their capital ratio is X and they're asking for X in commitment authority, well, what? I'll give you $500 million or whatever it might be. They can control that there you go. to some degree. And the problem, and I don't want to speak for them because it's been a while since I've been involved in the nuts and bolts of Jenny May. But it doesn't appear that that's happening. It might be in certain cases, but it necessarily doesn't appear what it's happening. But I don't think if it is happening, it isn't happening from the standpoint of being able to correlate between the capital rate requirement for liquidity needed against the portfolio that they have outstanding. So I think there has to be some work done there. Congress needs to get serious and HUD needs to get serious about giving Ginny May the personnel it needs to be able to manage so the true. risk Ginny May. And it didn't happen before I was in office. 
It didn't happen while I was in office, and it certainly still hasn't happened. So if we're going to run a, a multi-trillion dollar industry, then we certainly have to have the experience and the personnel to be able to do that. And right now, Ginny doesn't have that. Yeah. And that's something you've been advocating for. Everyone's been advocating Forever. for it. For, well, one reason. Yeah. And it's it not allocated. We're, we'll talk about that in a minute. You said there are three points to the improvement of the agreement, the $2.5 million net worth coming up with some type of capital liquidity requirements, like the idea of liquidity ratios and giving a, an authority up to a certain amount of issuance. What's the third thing you think we should be doing? Well, I think they really have to focus on who's allowed to have, at what level, who's allowed to have MSRs and who has to refrain from allowing people to have accumulate MSRs. I, I remember going into having a conversation back well, five years now, and, and I said, look, if you've got an issuer there who's retaining MSRs, you should be able to look at it and say, but you really can't do that. We want you to liquidate those MSRs, or we want you to do this or that, so you can accumulate the liquidity for that until you get to a certain level. These programs aren't there. And here again, I'm not pointing the finger at Jenny because I love the program and I love right. the people. The problem is they don't have the personnel to be able to manage that type of environment. And that's really what's key. And David, you look at $2 trillion and sometimes when you say a trillion, you hear that number all the time <laughs> over and people don't really have any idea of what that really means. But I can tell you, if we have a problem in the Ginny May portfolio of $2 trillion, we've got a problem. The last thing we want to do is is not be prepared yeah, for that. that program. And we're looking at what Mark Calabria is doing as the director of the FHFA and what he's planning to do with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I understand divesting, get the taxpayer off of the hook for this. This program's different. This is inside of the HUD. And so this program is here to stay as a government entity. And that I don't see that going away. Do you at all? Is there any chance of Jenny May being no. spun out separately? I, I go back to when, when I was in office and my good friend Brian Montgomery was the uh, FHA commissioner. Yeah. We talked about the benefits of spinning it out so it would be in, a, an independent agency that it could be able to manage the expectations of the marketplace at the same time that it, it could it had the wherewithal to manage the risk of what was going on in the marketplace. And as long as it's like any other thing, when it's tucked up under HUD, it doesn't get the yep. attention that it needs to get, and it doesn't have the authority that it needs to have. And that's problematic. And now uh, Brian is in a a great position as deputy secretary. I mean, if he's able to to retain that position, if the if the administration is reelected into office, I'm hoping that Brian is going to be instrumental in not only make make some improvements to the FHA program, but also really really take a hard look at at doing this. But I don't know of any HUD secretary that's willing to spin out Ginny May from within itself. I mean, it's that's a tough thing for them to do, but in reality, right. it's really what needs to be done. And I would love to go into that, but because that seems a bit of a fantasy, as practical and valuable as that would be, I'm not sure the reality of that, but it's, it is probably because of the political environment is where I want to go next. Better than anybody, what that job entails within Ginny May. That is some of the work, hardest working people. I have tremendous respect for Greg Keith, Michael Drain, the guys on the line managing that. We just did an interview with uh, Greg Keith and head of risk management there. I mean, head of all risk. And uh, he, with the resources he has, he's trying to do his best to do that. But when I was asking him about some of these players that are approved, that some of the companies that are approved that are in there and questioning about this, he says, we're not in a position. Uh, we're here, I mean, again, talking as, I'm not saying a bureaucrat in a negative sense, but they're part of the federal government. They're very aware of the constituency and the political aspect of this. So talk about that. The political environment that Jenny May lives is almost fraught with so many problems that the very structure that it sits in is fraught with so many potential problems 
that I'm not sure that this, there's much hope for this change. Until something really happens, then it's going to get a whole lot of attention, and that's not going to be good. We, that jeopardizes the program. I mean, that's what really raises my blood pressure is when I think of what could happen, the, the what-ifs. and the, What happened if we have a catastrophic environment, the, the $2 trillion? And then what in God's name would we end up with when you get all these folks on the hill trying to trying to mold this new entity like uh, Ginny May? You, you never know what you're going to end up with, and that's problematic. And you're right. It, it can be a political... I, David, when I came into office, the net worth requirement was $500,000. And I remember trying my best to get it to, uh, get it to go to $2, two million. And you just get your finger slapped. You can't do that. Well, why can't you do that? Well, because basically it, it's, it becomes very political. There are constituency issues. There are, is this going to be a program that's going to benefit this group uh, of borrowers, that group of borrowers, you know, this group of consumers? That, you know, everybody's got their fingers in it, and everybody wants it to be what it is for right now the way it is. Nobody wants any changes to be made to it. And then you look at it and say, but if you don't make the changes necessary to this, it may not be there tomorrow. When I right. came into office, Ginny May was producing five to seven, maybe eight billion dollars a month. And when I got into office, and then all of a sudden, because when they when when the conservatorship happened, I mean, we went up to seventy five billion a month. We didn't have the liquidity domestically to to be able to to have seventy five billion dollars a month in request. We had to go if if we didn't go to to the Asian marketplace to get that necessary liquidity, we'd have had a a cluster one on our hands, you know, on, on a month-to-month -month yep. basis. It, it, tr it truly right. saved the mortgage industry in 2008-2009 because no one yeah, knew what, what, what the heck was going to go on with the GSEs. So everybody was putting all their eggs in that in that FHA or BA basket, and that's so it's such it has such an importance to it that I would I would hope that you would get these consumer groups. You have the Asian consumer group. You've got the, the African-American consumer groups. You've got this, uh, the Hispanic consumer groups. All these consumer groups, that their constituents in those consumer groups really depend for housing, whether it's multifamily or residential, with the Ginny Mae programs. And you would, I would hope that they would sit back and say, we've got to do something here. We've got to protect that because our constituency depends yeah. on a roof over their head that that program is, is uh, alive and well. But the very ones that it's helping also because of the tenuous aspects of their credit profile is also puts the program at risk, which goes back to who should be involved in it. Is that, ac is that an accurate statement? That's an accurate statement. And, but, but what? Uh, here again, I'll, I'll, I'll flip this around for you. The program was designed, first of all, let's, let, let me step back. If I want to be in the VA business, and I'm a lender, and I'm doing VA loans, I'm in for a penny, I'm in for a pound, because you're participating in the loss with the VA. Not so much in the FHA program, which is something that I think needs to be really evaluated at, okay? I, I, I'm not sure today what the maximum law out-of-pocket is for, um, for an FHA lender if they do everything right in the foreclosure. It used to be like 3500 or 4000 but that's chump change in today's marketplace. The VA, they'll steal your wallet if you're not careful in the VA program. So, yeah. so you got to have the right people making making those loans, being issuers who have the wherewithal to be able to withstand those kind of losses. That's what makes Ginny's program so nice. It doesn't go back and harm Ginny May, in essence, like it does Fannie and Freddie in their program. The taxpayers aren't paying for that. 
the issuers paying for that are on the line. So you've got to have the right issuers issuing those bonds on behalf of those groups. But if you're saying I'm going to make loans to, v, to a veteran and you've got a veteran moving all over the, uh, over the damn world, you, if you're going to make a housing program for somebody in the FHA program, you have to anticipate that those borrowers are going to be in trouble a lot more than folks maybe in the conventional program. So you have to have the right people making those loans to those folks who can support a higher delinquency rate than you would have under the under the, the conventional programs. I'm not so sure, David, that that's the way it works today. I'm really no, not. No, it doesn't. Sure. Uh, you know? that, that really is bring, you're bringing up a great point because then it's who should be admitted into the program, who should be right. approved by Jenny May, and it's those that know how to do I wouldn't say it's specialty servicing per se, but it's certainly not the typical Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, a borrower that is better suited probably for a Fannie Mae program, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac program. So this is a more difficult loan. Talk about that. So you serve on the board of New Day USA, and it does a lot of VA refinancing. Talk about some of the lenders like them that do do that type of specialty or focus on that. How do they prepare to handle this type of product versus an A true A paper lender who retains the MSRs? If you're going to be a FHA or a VA lender, you really have to understand that you have to understand and analyze the 1003. So every line in the 1003 is is filled out, and you're really you're going back now in time to the way we used to underwrite loans back 20, 30 yeah. years ago. Yep. And you, if you don't have, it's not a score. To me, a 640 FICO score means nothing to me because I don't know the underlying support in that 640 FICO score. So if I look at someone's 1003 and I look at their credit history, I may see this guy that he, he's, a, he's late on a credit card payment or this, but what he pays his rent on time every month or he pays his mortgage on time every month. That tells me that he understands the importance of who he owes. So he is not as much a risk as someone who doesn't. Very few people go back to the old line of underwriting to be able to do it. That's the one thing that we enjoy about serving on the, on the New Day board with the veterans. I'm a veteran. Admiral Tom Lynch is a veteran. General Jones is a veteran. Secretary Nicholson's a veteran. We're all veterans, and we hold the, 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 the company to a certain standard. Yes, we want to make every loan we can to every veteran that we can make a loan to, but we have to make sure that that veteran has the wherewithal to meet those obligations. You're not going to you're not going to put them in a loan that's going to absolutely blow up on them because you haven't done your homework. And that's that's the key. We're not we should go back to a form of underwriting that we're really understanding what that profile of that borrower looks like because we're looking at it from every aspect we can not putting this thing into some algorithmic black box and all of a sudden it comes out and says, well, you're a 780 FICO score or you're a 680 or you're a 620. That tells me nothing. No, I absolutely agree with you. I've got my certification as a direct endorsed underwriter under the HUD program back in 1978. I love the VA residual income underwriting approach. I think it's probably one of the better approaches. I've right. always wondered when you formulate, put a formula to it, 
That works, I guess, maybe better in the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac programs. You have a more predictable score. But underwriting a veteran, underwriting, especially a veteran who's gone through some difficulties, underwriting a HUD borrower who is buying their first home, there's other aspects that need to go into that underwriting. And you really bring up a great point. And I think as we look at who we approve and let into the system, into the Jenny Mays program specifically, not only should there be limits based on their net worth, their liquidity, but there also needs to be a clear demonstrated understanding of their ability to understand the program and the loans going into that program and how to service them. Let's get into the servicing part, the MSR part of it, because servicing a Jenny May pool does have some differences if you would address that, just touch on that, some of the things that you have seen can make a difference in a well-serviced Jenny May pool versus one that's not. There's nobody I respect more than Mark Helm. Mark has forgotten more about servicing than I'll ever even know. And, and, and I have a respect for him because in today's day and age, when I look at somebody who's, in my mind, the expert, it's a guy like Mark Helms. But I go back in time to uh, guys like Tony Barone. If you remember a guy like Tony yes. Barone, yeah. Tony yeah, Barone, I do. Tony Barone was an absolute expert at sniffing out a good deal because he grew up in the consumer finance era when everybody that made a loan was responsible for that loan, and you had to learn how to manage the expectations. So you were responsible yeah. from the moment that thing, if, if the payment due was the fifteenth and that payment wasn't wasn't there on the sixteenth, you were on top of it. Or if you had a customer who was generally late and, and they were due on the 15th, you start calling them on the 12th. Are you going to make your payment right. on the 15th? Today, yeah. everything is so mechanized that, and I'm not saying it's all wrong. I'm just saying we've lost that touch that we used to have yeah. and the knowledge and the knowledge that goes along with that touch to be able to effectively service a loan. I yep. grew up in the in the banking business, that's where my and I used to run a, a, a bucket, thirty, sixty, ninety day bucket, calling that consumer every every month. You learn to respect, and and they did that back in the day, so that when you had loan authority, you paid attention. They remember the days when you were collecting the thirty and sixty day and ninety day bucket, and that's how yep. that's how we learned back in the seventies. So that doesn't happen today. That doesn't happen today, and and. You make an assumption that just because you make a refi today that that refi is going to be good tomorrow. That's a, that's a bad assumption to make. It really is. There's so many factors that go into how a loan is underwritten, into the program it goes into, and then more importantly, how that loan is serviced afterwards. I love what Ed Faye does at Faye Servicing. He's a specialty servicer and how yes, he has stayed on top of that. Ed yeah. does a brilliant job of servicing loans. And, and because it is more of a specialty servicing, it's product that he usually takes that's a discounted, it's deep, oftentimes high delinquencies in it. But he brings it current through this kind of practice. And that's the art that we've lost. And I'm really glad you're on your soapbox about that. And it brings up my underwriting, favorite underwriting topic, which is the underwriting side. Let's get the right loans into the system. And I am concerned that lenders that are applying for this are doing so for their own liquidity. Let me get this. This is not just a re- another secondary market that we deliver into. This is a special program that has a special purpose, and we cannot forget the purpose. How do we get that message to Congress? We have people on the Hill that listen to our podcast. What is the message you believe we should be bringing to the Hill on this topic? Well, I mean, it, it, first of all, you've got to – you got to get 
a group of people on the Hill that have an interest, have a true interest in doing what's right. And that's very difficult. I mean, in today's environment, I mean, it, let's face it, David, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, they'll be the first one to point a finger if something blows up. But were you sitting around thinking about the what ifs or how can we make this better? And everything that's touched now on the Hill is a political football. That's not the way we should be looking at this because there are a lot of constituents that are put in a bad situation because of poor underwriting or, or, or the lack thereof of underwriting. We, we need the Hill to have meetings about this and committee meetings about this to really got to understand what's going on with, with this program. And it just isn't happening. And, and if there's many people that listen to your podcast on the Hill should be be able to look at, listen to all these podcasts and say something to this. Maybe we should have a, a session just to learn a little bit more about this. And so that we, we're not stepping in this. If something happens and then we've got egg on our face and the first thing we're going to do is run for cover and point, point fingers. All that does is it hurts the consumer. Right. If we have a blip in, in the Ginnie Mae program, it's going to hurt the people who need it the most. And that's the problem that I have. You know, I have an, an enormous amount of respect for our consumer groups, an enormous amount of it for hardworking people. I said there's so many people that need this program, want this program, and we're in the amount of partisanship that's going on on the Hill right now. I, I have a, probably the lowest hope. I, if this president, this current administration gets reelected, I'm highly confident they will be. Is there really hope? And then if so, what should they be focusing on? Is it having special hearings on this, to be looking into this. What are the steps that you would recommend yeah. to them, Joe? They need to start with special hearings. They need to get the people in there up in front of them who really have spent a lifetime in this business understanding what this business is all about, the risk of all this business, and how it harms or benefits their constituency. And that's really what they should be doing and what there isn't. They'll play around this football of, should we take Fannie and Freddie out of conservatorship? We've, they went into conservatorship in 2008. I mean, that's <laughs> yes. 12 years ago. How long are they going to be in conservatorship? Why don't we put that aside and, and come to the terms on that and let and let them loose? Now, I don't believe that that the United States taxpayer taxpayer has to pay for the mistakes of of the programs that we had in Fannie and Freddie before the the conservatorship. I think I think the Ginnie Mae program is probably the best constructed program in the business. I mean, it has it gives the confidence to the bond buyers that there's catastrophic coverage, and yet Ginnie Mae is not responsible technically for that. The, the people that issue are responsible for that. So we need to look at that and say, is that the best way to do this? Is there a better way to be able to find ways to be able to have a more qualified issuer in place to be able to protect that? We, we don't have enough hearings to support what's really needed in the marketplace as it relates to the, the world of finance. And that, to me, is something that's, that's lacking. There should be subcommittee meetings meeting all the time to figure out what the best solution for this is, looking at all the what-ifs. The what-ifs are so important. And I think we might have got into this one day when we were talking at our Ainsworth meeting. Does anybody really think about the what-ifs in our business? I, it's, it's hard for me. Not I, nearly been, as much as they need to. That is for sure. David, you and I, you and I know we've been around a long time. And I and I love and I love the mortgage industry. I because it does so it provides such a benefit to consumers. It puts a roof yeah. over someone's head. There's nothing more important than having a family be able to move into a home. And and you yet 
you and I have tried to talk to, to, to folks in the mortgage industry over the years, and I have an old saying, mortgage bankers are either too busy or too sad. There's Nothing. never an in-between. Yeah. There's yeah. never an in-between. When you, we, we understand the too busy. Talk about the too sad. Explain that a little bit. Well, I, I, well, I know what you mean, but I want others, our listeners to know it. If, if they're not running a thousand percent every day and they're too busy, if they falls off in business and they're wondering where the next deal's coming from, they, they kind of sit there sad. and they're yeah. too sad. You know, I mean, yeah. there's no there's no middle market for these guys in their in their emotional yeah. state. I mean, in, in our industry, and it's <laughs> well, that's why I think there's so much. What is the answer? Is it an education program? Is it requiring some type of certification? I was literally on the uh, talking to one of the senior execs at Fannie Mae about this. Our firm, Transformational Mortgage Solutions, which I'm proud to say Mark Helm is now very deep in a part of that, as he is Ainsworth Advisors, and we were talking about this. And I really believe there should be more education. I mean, I love what the MBA is doing, applauding that, but there needs to be more in a readiness program to prove you're ready. I mean, you look at what people have to do in other areas to get certified. Dear God, to be an appraiser now, to be any some of the other service industries out there, it's way over. We do not have the proper training. You know, it's too easy to become a, a mortgage broker or a mortgage lender. Generally, what happens Generally, what happens is you have a, a very effective salesperson in an organization, and that, that, and that salesperson looks around and says, well, I need to start my own business. Okay, so they go out and they start their own brokerage firm or whatever, but their concentration is on sales. Right. They really don't concentrate on the rest of their business, the back room, the underwriting. Just get the deal done. Let's get the deal done. Let's get the deal done. I got a pipeline. Let's get the deal done. I need 10 loans this month. I need 20 loans this month. I've got to keep my nose above the water line. But nothing really happens to look at this as a business. It's a business from the, from the moment the application comes in until the loan is paid off at some point in time. It's a business, and it stops generally because the lack of knowledge or the lack of desire by the person who started the business to go beyond the sale. This is a, it's a big business. Going back to one of the original points you made at the beginning, this provides liquidity. It's one of the most important liquidity programs that are out there. But if you're just seeing the program as a vehicle to liquidity and not understanding the risk involved in this liquidity program, you're setting yourself up or you're setting the system up, which is really concerning. We both share a passion on this for a particular catastrophic failure. And if that happens, right. like you say, all the people that are most benefit from this are going to be the losers, the greatest losers in it. So I think it's important to understand, in addition to, yes, this is a great liquidity program, but think past the liquidity. What is special about it? And you're raising some of the best points I've heard talked about in a long time. I hope this gets listened to on the Hill. I'm going to do my job pushing it out there. we got a great program, folks. Jenny May issues right now it's as of uh, May 8th, uh, 2020, the uh, outstanding increase to $2.19 trillion. That right. is a program that is speaking to it. I mean, and you weren't there that many years ago. I mean, it was in 2000. If I'm looking at your your your, your profile here, you were 2008 to 2009, and back then right. you were saying it was 860 billion. Yeah. Now we're at right. 2.1 trillion. This is a testimony to the power of this program or how it can help homeowners. But I too share your passion that I am very concerned about this, and we need you back. On the program, please take care of your health. Please 
be willing to stay involved. But I mean, I know we do get older. I'm turning 70 this year. I am. We got to start educating the next generation. So who should we be looking at to to pick up this baton? Who would be your recommendation? Uh, name names or at least give me a, just a, a a profile. Probably the better way to go. Every company around needs a little bit of gray hair in it. Somebody with experience. Yeah. I, I mean, I love. I I I couldn't hold a candle to some of the brilliance that some of these young folks have and they and they are smart and they're educated but they don't know what they don't know because they haven't spent a yeah. lot of time in it they don't have a lot they've never licked any wounds they don't know and they they very 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 seldom ever think about the what ifs and i will guarantee you i will guarantee you as sure as i'm standing here sitting here today that i'll say less than five percent of the mortgage industry out there had a pandemic plan in place. Right. I agree. Yeah. They Institutions, probably, regulated us, depositories had to. They've thought through that. Most yeah. depositories actually had a pandemic. But they have a discipline. The regulators are on them, examining them. Where is this plan, that plan? So they understand that. Independents do not. And that's what's recreated, again, because of we have $2.149 trillion in this program, which is we now have the PTAP, the pass-through Thank God for PTAP, but that's a very restrictive program. Have you ever read the requirements? I mean, that's really restrictive. I understand yeah. why Jeannie and Treasury are doing it. It's I'm fine with it, but you really got to be desperate to take on the PTAP program because there's yeah. a lot of restrictions. But from from the standpoint of you've got to get people to, and maybe, maybe, and I'm not saying for sure because I'll, I'll get a lot of pushback on this, maybe the mortgage industry needs to be regulated. Ah, uh, I, you know, I, 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 I know. I hate to say I hate to say that. I know. I am feeling I've been so against regulation. I've been so anti it. But maybe it's because we're getting older, Joe, when we look at the importance of having some training wheels. Either we get some education and certifications in place to prove that you are able to do there, or if you fail to self-regulate from within, you must be regulated from without, or this program is going to blow up. And I cannot believe I'm saying that as a registered Republican. But listen, this, listen this is David, against this. We both know that we better self-regulate because if someone else regulates, we're not going to like it. That's it, right. it won't be the yep. same industry. So nope. we better, right now, I think the, the mortgage bankers of America are the tip of the spear when it comes to this stuff. And I know right. that they've got, I understand the politics of the NBA, but... If not them to start, who then to be able yep. to figure out how to educate and how to self-regulate? Because if that doesn't, I, I, David, I'm telling you, sure as God, I'm standing here. If something blows up with that $2.19 trillion of outstandings that Ginny May, all hell will break loose in, in, inside the beltway. And it won't be good for oh. anybody. It's not going to be good for anybody. Well, I hope we get some, stir up some thinking on this and hopefully get some bit past this election and get serious about looking at this program. I want to thank you on that we're recording this just before Memorial Day. And Joe, first of all, I want to thank you for your service as a veteran. I want to thank you for your civil service inside of our government with Jenny May, serving as the president, Jenny May. I also want to thank you for your passion to make programs like this viable and ongoing for generations to come. Appreciate you. I value you. Uh, at so many levels, personally and professionally. I want to say thank you, sir. Uh, it's a pleasure, David. Anytime for you, I'd be happy to come on board and, 
and talk about the things that irritate me every day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we need to get a little stirred up. It's okay. Uh, It's fun to find a couple old guys getting stirred up on these things because it is important because it's not about us. It's not us making them. It's really about the next generation. And, folks, we've got to preserve this system. $2.149 trillion. We have got to protect this. It is a real, I think you said it so well to be this program is a gift. Joe Murin, thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure, David. Thank you. And maybe I'll put a good point in at this point. Listeners, go over to Ainsworth Advisors. I would almost say that this particular podcast is sponsored by Ainsworth Advisors. But the reason I founded Ainsworth Advisors is because of this very thing. I was a young mortgage banker. I've been involved as an owner-operator, president and CEO of two of the companies, I wish to God I would have had an Ainsworth advisory group that I could call on. As you grow your business, I encourage you to head out to that website, AinsworthAdvisors.com. Look at the profiles of the individuals in there. I'm so honored to have friendships and invite these people in. Gary Ortz, they're pretty much running that for me on my behalf because I'm so busy with Transformational Mortgage Solutions. He's doing a great job. We've got Joe Murin in there. We have Jay Brinkman in there. We've got Mark Hellman. You are so right, Joe. That man has forgotten more than most people will ever know about servicing. And the best part, he's such a humble guy. He is just so willing to share. He's done so well financially, yet he's out there every day giving back and literally helping lenders hold their hands, get them approved, working with me on such an honor. So check out the Ainsworth Advisors, everybody. Joe, again, thank you for being a part of that organization. Let's see if we can't use this podcast to get some people fired up and consider a Ainsworth board for their company. Thank you, sir. Have a great Memorial Day. You do the same, David. Thank you. Bye-bye. Love that podcast. Enjoyed Joe's interview. I hope you did. Share it with others and especially share it on the Hill. We need to get the word out that uh, this is a special program, and uh, we're so grateful to have Joe Murin still involved in the industry. Us old gray hairs <laughs> still going to make a difference. Next week, we have got Matt Graham uh, of MBS Live who will be joining us. He's, uh, again, part of our regular podcast now. He's one of the regulars. We're going to get to know Matt a little bit better and what makes MBS Live so special. So be sure to come back here next week. I want to say a special thank you to all of our sponsors, Finastra, CMLA, the Community Mortgage Lenders of America, as well as Indicom, Accelerate, Ainsworth Advisors, Mobility, RE, Modex, and so many others. Check out all of our sponsors on our sponsorship page. Thank you so much. Have a great week, everybody, and look forward to talking to you next week. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin' of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.